Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. So today for you, I actually have a bit of a Matt Henry introduction. So brace yourselves for that. But we're going to be looking at Psalm 43. And in many ways, it's a continuation of Psalm 42, now, I mentioned previously as I preached a couple weeks back that these two psalms can, uh, can be taken together, and the reasons for that are fairly straightforward. In some Hebrew manuscripts, you actually have them combined as one, and there is actual historical evidence that at some point, uh, at the very least, they would have been used together in corporate worship for them. Uh, even if you ignored all of that, though, you see that as you read it, there are internal clues that suggest they may have originally been one psalm. You can see they uphold the same type of theme. You can see that there is not a, a heading in Psalm 43, which is the only one, by the way, in book two of the Psalms that doesn't contain a heading. But then you can also see that based on verses 5 and 11 in Psalm 42, and that verse 5 in Psalm 43, they're nearly identical. Now, this gives us a pretty easy clue to see that we can safely assume that this was written out of the same circumstances by the same psalmist. So, why did I take them separately? Well, the answer for that is relatively simple. I mean, it really makes no meaningful difference in the text itself as how you understand it if you do take them together or separately, because you're going to have to deal with them both no matter what. But there is a natural break in the two psalms. And although they are very closely related, there's a slightly different emphasis in Psalm 43 than Psalm 42. Psalm 42 has this emphasis that I preached before as hope in God. Now, Psalm 43's emphasis is a prayer born out of that hope to God himself. And yet it still relates to this idea behind it where there is this reality that we call piety or that God is to be your exceeding joy. So my desire in taking these psalms separately then was that I could develop this idea of what it means to actually hope in God a bit further for you, but also just simply talk about the nature of suffering because we are undoubtedly, if we're going to be faithful to the gospel and faithful to Christ, we will suffer. I mean, Timothy was told this, right? All who desire godliness must suffer. It's not an option. But the reality is that if you have hope, or hope in God, rather, that Everything else flows from this particular reality. If your consistent hope is in God and God alone, you're going to stand through the various trials of life that life has to throw at you. But in order to do that, you actually have to know what it means to place your hope in God. So as we're going to see today, though, it's not this abstract concept. It's all informed by what we truly believe about God and his word. We have various different things in our culture and the broader world that constantly vie for our attention, meaning that they're always trying to draw us away from the truth and take or tug at our heartstrings. Little do we think of how much our minds, hearts, and souls are in this constant battle. Without even being aware of it, we are drawn into various competing theologies and philosophies and ideologies even that go contrary to the very word of God. Thus, a question that you and I must constantly ask is, what is the well 
you draw from. Whether you find yourself in days of peace or abundance or days of hardship and suffering, what is the well you draw from? To put it in the terms of our psalmist today, what is your exceeding joy, beloved? What is your delight? What is the source of your strength and guidance and hope? What is it that captures your heart? And by that, I mean, what is it that truly captures your heart? We all know the correct answer of what that should be. But the question is, what is it that actually captures our hearts? Well, the reason I ask this is is quite simple at the base level. Whatever truly captures your heart, beloved, will be the well you draw from when suffering comes. Not if, but when. Whatever preoccupies the majority of your thoughts or guides your decisions, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, this will be the contents of your well. And so I ask you today, what will the contents of the well you draw from be, and will they sustain you on the day that suffering actually comes? When all else fails, what will be the contents that you drag up? Only you can answer that question. Though I might have an educated guess at times, I cannot peek and peer into the hearts of everyone here. I cannot discern between the thoughts and the intentions of your thoughts. But one thing I can say is I know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Scripture can The picture painted for us in Scripture is that our hearts are desperately sick. We are prone to idolatry. In fact, John Calvin said of our hearts that they are a perpetual factory of idols. We churn out idol after idol after idol. Now, we could easily look at the low-hanging, overripened fruit of idolatry that comes to bear and the many shiny baubles and trinkets that we naturally all go after, but perhaps we can see the more subtle lull towards complacency or the desire for, for power or sex or indulgence or comfort and safety and many of the other different things. But the reality is it's actually much, much bigger than this. It's much bigger than this. When we get to the root of idolatry in Scripture, we always have to understand what is the affection of our heart. What is our disposition of worship, in other words? Perhaps it's better to ask, as the Puritans did, are we a people of piety? Do we have reverence for God? Or as Scripture simply puts it, do we fear the Lord? Do we fear the Lord? Now, if you look out at the broader Christian church in our culture, it's often set the bar so low that anybody who has a love for the Bible or a love for doctrine is automatically seen as one who should become a teacher or a pastor. Right? And yet, and yet many a man in the pulpit lacks what this, the Puritans would call piety. They have no devotion to God, in other words. And I fear that much of what's taken place is that we have forgotten that the majority of qualifications in Scripture for a man approved by God is moral qualifications. In fact, only one of them is his ability to teach. Only one. The rest all test a man by his piety or what he loves. And yet... All the things that are required for pastors and elders are are basic elements of the Christian faith, meaning that every man, woman, and child is to embody these things. Elders are merely the exemplary factor of these things, but everybody who is in Christ is called to model the same type of behavior, right? There are none of you who are exempt from following Christ and being free from drunkenness or sexual immorality or any of the other moral qualifications in Scripture, We likewise falsely assume that a depth in the word and a love for the Bible is a thing that only certain people can attain to. 
that either ministers can attain to this or maybe the perhaps exceedingly godly man. We likewise assume it's only the prayer warriors who are good at prayer, or it's only the super evangelistic who are bold in their faith in preaching the gospel. It's only the expert at finances who's able to have a handle on their money. Maybe they are the ones who can be stewards and and generous at that. And yet all of these things, again, are, are basic aspects of the Christian faith. They're informed by our devotion and our reverence to God and his word. In other words, they are what makes us either a pious people or an unpious people. The question then, in all of it, is are we consumers? Are we consumers, beloved? Or are we a people who fear God? Now, we can devour podcasts and sermons and blog posts and books and virtually anything else that is out there today, thinking that if we read just one more book, it's going to teach us how to be a better parent or a better spouse or so on and so forth. But the reality is, much of the time, it's not that we lack knowledge. It's not that we lack even the know-how. It's that we don't desire to actually put it in a place what we already know to be true. And yet, I would regret not saying that for some, especially in our culture, the problem, again, is not this... uh, unwillful ignorance. It's willful ignorance. We know what the truth is again. We know that it is indeed a willful problem, but for others, it is a matter of not knowing the truth. They come out of churches who are poorly teaching. They come out of places where they have been embodying bad doctrine for literally their entire lives, and yet when they finally come to hear the exposition of the word, they don't know how to do any of the basic things that Christian faith teaches them. But all of it, we keep coming back time and time again to why we do the things we do. And especially on an individual level, we must always ask this question. What is our purpose behind it all? Is it born out of a devotion to God and his word? Do we desire to become more and more like Jesus Christ? Do we come each Sunday anticipating that the Lord is going to speak to us through his word? Do we come, in other words, not because it is simply duty, but because it is delight. When all of these things, when the Christian life and hearing the word and reading the word and praying and everything else is merely seen as a formality or the church is viewed as a social club of sorts, it is ultimately due to what the Puritans would call a lack of piety, a lack of devotion to God, a lack of reverence or fear toward God and his word. The ordinary means, all of those basic spiritual disciplines that we know that we should be participating in day in and day out, are all what God has given us for our growth in Christ. And it is precious, precious remedies to the soul. But only if we reverence God, only if we fear him. If we do not have a healthy fear of God, our Christian duties are merely one of the many things we will do purely out of obligation. And don't get me wrong, you must have a sense of holy obligation. We have duties before the Lord in which we must obey him. But we have so much more than this if we are the one who fears him. The scriptures say that we are to pursue God with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And right, if we don't do that, what does it reveal but that we do not think highly of God and his word? What it reveals instead is that we are guilty of thinking trite thoughts of God and his word. We draw from a shallow well, in other words. And what we are often surprised at why we draw up so little water. The problem, again, time and again, is it always just simply goes back to what the scriptures would call a fear of the Lord, a reverence. When we have drawn near to God, 
we have done so through much complacency. Rather than develop a deeper sense of awe and reverence in the glories of our God and his word, we have grown familiar with him. This is the same idea that's behind Jesus is my homeboy, right? This is the same idea behind Jesus takes the wheel because I can no longer control things. Therefore, now I'm going to finally turn it over to him. But scripture declares that in all things, Christ is Lord. He is master and we are but slaves. In one sense, this is Christian piety. It's the recognition that all of life is worship, that it's not that we can do this casually, but that it demands our all in all. Everything belongs to the Lord. And yet piety goes beyond simple reverence and obedience to God and his word. This is the foundation of it. Don't get me wrong. You, you must love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you must start that with obedience. But the reality is that what gets produced from all of this is adoration. What gets produced from it is joy and delight. We often think of piety as something that describes a very stodgy, unjoyful, sober people who don't delight in the basic things of life, right? But our psalmist portrays that today the, psalmist, or the, the pious life is one of which you can see God as your exceeding joy even in the midst of the most trying circumstances. Piety, in other words, is not simply a love of God and his word or an obedience to God, God's word. It is an actual unbridled joy in God and his word. The reason I say all this is profoundly simple. When trials come, they have a way of revealing what's already in our hearts. In other words, they don't bring out something new. What they do is just simply showcase what's already there. You might be a person who struggles immensely through a trial, and that's okay. I mean, look at, look at our psalmist here, right? In Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, he's anything but a happy man in many ways. He's removed from the presence of the Lord in, in the temple. He's unable to perform his priestly duties. He's held captive by men who just simply want to see his downfall. They mock him for his faith. He's filled with dread. His tears are never ending. They're his source of food, as he describes it in Psalm 42. And yet in Psalm 43, he is still able to say at the end of all of that, God is my exceeding joy. Hope in God. In the midst of all of his dire conditions, he rebukes himself, right? You remember that in 42. But he also commands himself towards hope. And the reason for this is all because he fears the Lord. It is his fear of the Lord that produced hope in our psalmist. It's the fear of the Lord that um, produced conviction in his heart. That doesn't come out of nowhere. He doesn't draw deeply from a well out of nowhere. It led him to see that God's covenant love would ultimately never fail him, even as evil men sought to destroy him. In all things, he based it in the objective truth and reality of what God has said and what God has promised and what God has already done for him. It was piety, in other words, that unbridled joy in God himself that led him to see that he had no ultimate reason to despair. That even though the, the times around him were not joyous, he saw God is with him, God is for him, and God is even his greatest possession in the midst of evil. He actually knew the word of God, the songs of God's people, and he tucked them away in his heart. And when all of that came to bear, in other words, he had this deep, incredibly deep well to draw from in which he was able to remind himself of his delight in his one true God. And then this actually informed his prayers, as we will see today. All of this is why I ask you, what is the well you draw from? 
I, I don't do it to, to bash anybody or to beat you over the head, but the reality is that when suffering comes, we must have a deep well to draw from, or what's going to happen is that as affliction plays out, we're going to be nothing but miserable. We'll never remind ourselves of who God is and what he has done and what he's promised to do, but ultimately, we're going to run a very sloppy race. God has promised to preserve us in Christ, and so that reality is set. We cannot lose in that sense, and yet look back to your last trial and simply ask, what, is, what did I draw from in the midst of that time? Did I tap the limits of my well because I placed my hope in miserable and ungodly comforters? Did I have shallow prayers? Did I have shallow self-counsel because everything that was given from my heart was not that God was my exceeding joy, but that the things of this life were my exceeding joy? If God is your exceeding joy, beloved, you shall find an endless supply of comfort and joy in the midst of suffering because God himself is endless. He will be the one that supplies everything from your well. Joy in God ultimately outlasts everything on this earth. It is joy in God that produces holiness. It is joy in God that produces obedience. It is joy in God that causes us to endure through trials and sufferings, knowing that it produces a weight of endurance and hope. It is joy in God that will produce such hope. And yet that exceeding joy surpasses the fleeting feeling of happiness we so often chase after in this life. In other words, simply ask yourself, did I have the presence of joy or the absence of joy in my last trial. The presence or absence of true joy in the midst of suffering will prove the well we draw from. If God is your exceeding joy, nothing can actually rob that from you. Nothing can give you greater inspiration in your prayers. Nothing can make you pour out your soul in hope to your one true God. That, in a nutshell, is what sustained our psalmist here. He, he simply recognized who God is, what God has promised to do. And the only thing that brought him comfort in the midst of despair was God himself, because he had nothing else. I mean, he literally had nothing. It was this devotion to God and his word, long before evil men kidnapped him, long before any of this stuff happened, that he was actually able to stay grounded in the midst of his suffering. Now, as we turn our attention to the contents of the psalm, it's only five verses, I want you to pay attention just to how his, his prayers throughout this whole psalm are informed by this reality of piety or devotion to God himself in four ways. First, you have the psalmist praying for vindication to God. He says, he is my strength. So secondly, he makes a petition for restoration to God. And he says that God guides him in light and truth. Thirdly, you have the psalmist promised praise to God, who is his exceeding joy. And then finally, again, he postures himself toward hope to God, who is his salvation. So now look with me to verses one through two, where we see the first of four responses of the man whose joy is God. Notice what he says here. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust man. So what is at the crux of our psalmist's dilemma here? But justice. 
right? It is that idea of true biblical justice. The language here is all reminiscent of a courtroom scene. He stands on trial before his accusers, who are wicked men, and in every single way, he has no hope for an actual fair trial. Whether he's actually standing in court really makes no grand difference here. They are ultimately acting as a judge, jury, and executioner. So he is captured by these men. This is a real reality, if you will, for him. They've rendered a verdict without any lawful reason, and they have every intent to not set him free. So he's not actually using this as a metaphor. I mean, he has every real potential of dying by the hands of these men. These are very real people who have every real intent to harm him, and they very, in a, in a very real manner continually mock him, saying, where is your God now? Remember that from Psalm 42? As he's crying and as they're mocking him, that's all he's just enduring this whole time. But notice how he describes these men here. He says they are ungodly, they are deceitful, and they are unjust. Well, the ungodly man is simply one who has no thought of God in his ways. He's ultimately mindless of God in the same way that Romans 1 describes him. He he doesn't consider God. He doesn't delight in him. He doesn't honor him and give him thanks. But rather, he is given over to complete lawlessness, as Paul would describe it. In other words, he does, as what the book of Judges would say, he he does what's right in his own eyes continually. He suppresses the truth in, in unrighteousness even. But more than that, he just does what he wants. And so our psalmist stands before this entire group of people who he says are characterized by this reality. In no way, shape, or form are they concerned about genuine biblical justice. It may be they have kidnapped him. It may be they've also just held him up on false charges in an actual court setting. Regardless of how they got a hold of him, though, the writing is ultimately on the wall for this guy. They have no intent to hold a fair trial again, and we see this all the more clearly as he continues to just simply describe them as deceitful. Now, what is the deceitful one but one who just simply does not love the truth? Well, the word in the Hebrew here is that he is a trickster. He's a fraud. It's the same word that Genesis describes Jacob as, as he sought to steal the birthright from Esau. He was a trickster, right? A deceiver. So these men... Ultimately, what you can gather about them is that they're going to be tricksters and deceivers or hucksters, if you will, in the courts. Everything they're going to do is going to be given towards slander or misrepresentation of who this man is and what he has done. And the reason for that is they want things to go into their favor. So think of him. He's sitting there, imprisoned, waiting for the truth to come out, and yet he knows that the truth will never come out because these men are not a men of truth. They are ungodly, they are deceitful, they want to see him destroyed. In other words, it's basically the epitome of what it means to be an unjust people, and that's why he calls them that as well. Now, perhaps the best word to describe what he means by unjust here is what the New Testament would call malice. Malice is a sort of catch-all phrase that describes a deliberate intent of somebody who wants to cause harm or injury or distress, but they want to do it for their own joy. I don't know if you've heard of this word from the Germans. The Germans have a wonderful word for it called Schaldenfreude. And what it means is that not only do you desire their harm, but you actually get this sick and twisted delight out of their harm. That's, that's the whole purpose behind it. It's this twisted evil malice. On the whole, these people are not only those who disregard God and hate him in his ways, they hate justice, or they hate being truthful, right? They're frauds and hucksters. They just want to see this man in his most 
desperate condition continue to fall down and down and down. So that's their joy. In every way, notice he's at the, just the mercy of a merciless people. He has no hope they're going to suddenly develop a conscience, if you will. And yet, in spite of his circumstances, as we see here, he still pleads to God to intervene and deliver him, right? He still cries out to him and says, vindicate me, God. He recognizes in, in all of it, he's ultimately powerless to do anything. These men are a godless people in a godless land. They are standing up and accusing him of wrongdoing. No truth is going to come out. And so he cries out to the one who upholds the very foundations of justice itself. Right? The courtroom imagery just continues all the more here. He asks God again to vindicate him. And what he means by that is just plead my case. Deliver me ultimately from my accusers. This is an, an imperative of entreaty here. If you remember, an imperative means to what? It's a what? A command, exactly. So he's actually pretty brazen in one sense. He's commanding God, vindicate me. And yet that command is one of entreaty. It's slightly different. The reason it's all designed to just simply highlight the urgency of his real predicament. He's making a desperate plea before God because he knows that without God's intervention, that he's going to be found guilty. Right? These guys not only desire his harm, they just want to harm him all the more so they can actually take joy in it. So he says, deliver me, Father. He knows that if God rises to his defense, that he will be declared, not only declared an innocent man, but he's actually going to be set free from his unjust punishment and persecutors. And yet on the flip side of that, he knows that if God fails to act, things will go from bad to worse. In other words, he knows God must act or he's going to the grave. But the foundation of his request rests upon who God is. Right? These are not just arbitrary terms that he's using out of sheer panic to, de, to, to describe what he, he wants to happen. These are rich theological truths of who God is and what he has always done for his people. And this man is one who knows these things deeply. He knows that God is the God who vindicates. He's not only sung this before the great mighty throng of Israel one day as he led them up to the mountain to the very presence of God himself. He is the one who has studied these things. He's not only the one who sees that or knows that God sees those who are wrongly accused and that he will vindicate them. He's the God who upholds them in their blamelessness. He's also the God who pleads the case of the innocent. And yet more than this, he's even the God who snatches his people out of harm's way. What the psalmist is drawing from is this incredibly deep well of knowledge of all of that God has done, right? We saw that in Psalm 42, as he's constantly reminding himself of what the truth is. Not only what God has promised them as a people, but even what he knows to be true of him as an individual. But notice, he's not merely one who is begging for help. He's one who actually knows that God is his help, now look with me at verse 2, and we're going to see him base the reality of his prayer in who God is to him as his strength. He says, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Now pay attention to how he grounds himself and his prayers in this objective reality, again, of who God is to him. He says that Yahweh is the God of his strength. The term here is better translated stronghold. It holds the idea that this is a tower that you can run to when all else fails. It is the last line of defense, if you will. So if you're not familiar with what a stronghold was used for, when an 
army came in and was looking to destroy an entire people, that's a place you would run to if you were not a soldier, right? And then as the last line of defense falls with the men, the soldiers would go there too because it's incredibly hard to destroy. It's the most difficult thing in all the city to bring toppling down to the ground. So he says, God, you are my stronghold. You are my last line of defense here. He notices that God is a place of refuge and safety from his enemies, but while his enemies actually still surround him, now he says, in his mind, if you will, if a stronghold built by human hands is hard to destroy, how much more difficult to destroy the God who is undestroyable, right? For him, he knows that God is this one sure refuge that he can run to in the midst of any impending calamity, any doom. God is the fortress that cannot be toppled in the midst of where everything else may fail, God will not and cannot fail. And yet in the midst of him grounding himself in this objective truth of what he knows is true about God, does his heart and mind not still falter? Notice what he says. Why have you forsaken me? Everything he faces by every measurable criterion is that this God who is his stronghold, this one who is to him a sure place of safety and refuge, has forsaken him. He's rejected him. He mourns among an ungodly people who wish him harm. He's not been delivered. God has not even stood up to defend him before them. You can sense perhaps there's this confusion in him. He, He says, look, I know what is true about God, and yet, Why are my circumstances so radically different? He knows that God is just. He knows that God intervenes for his people. He knows that God is a saving God. And yet he sits in unjust conditions without a God who is intervening and without a God who is saving him. The incredible thing is that even here, he still affirms God is my stronghold. Despite how everything looks, God is my stronghold. This is what moves him to ask why God has not even come to the rescue yet, by the way. There's no point in which he just denies these things. He's merely looking at it and saying that things are not consistent with what I know, what I know God to be. In spite of how he sees things, in spite of how he feels, though, he's simply placing his trust all the more in the God he actually knows and delights in. He's, he's much like a child, right? You mothers, you've, you've had your children fall to the ground and cry, and who do they cry out to first? But mom, right? They know that mom's going to come over and swoop them up. Dad is just going to be like, all right, walk it off, kid. You got it. But moms, moms will always come over and scoop them up in the arms, and they'll tenderly come by the side. They'll wipe away the tears and clean the wounds and bandage them up and send them back out to play when they've calmed down. The psalmist is crying out to his God, much like you would to your own mother as a child, knowing that he will tenderly come by his side. He draws from this incredibly deep well what he knows is true because he spent a lifetime pouring into this reality, pouring into this hope. But now it comes to finally bear because he's in the midst of the crucible of affliction. He's enduring sufferings like he's never endured before. And so in the midst of it, he cries out, God, you are my stronghold. Will you be a stronghold to me? Everything he sees is miserable. But he places his hope and faith in God. It just, it leads me to ask, do you see God this way? 
Do you see him as a stronghold, even in the midst of things that just seem utterly hopeless? Is he your refuge that you find much hope and delight in, or is it still something that's going to be of this earth, still something you believe is going to deliver you from harm here? And I said in the beginning, suffering has this wonderful way of revealing what it is we treasure. It has a way of revealing what it is we truly hope in and what we truly believe and what we truly find joy and trust and delight in because it reveals all that we've poured our hearts out into. It reveals, in other words, what our affections are, what the things we love are. For many, the slightest discomfort or relative threat to, to peace amounts to suffering. And yet what will happen when true suffering comes is that you'll find what you've poured your hope into all the while is comfort and safety. For some others, the prospect of losing a safety net is akin to suffering. But when suffering comes, you'll find that the well you've drawn from entirely this time is this safety net, this false sense of safety. For a great number of people, the well you draw from is your own self-sufficiency. That's what I do, by the way, just in case you wanted to know, that's typically who I am as a man who wants to pull himself up by the bootstraps. When you're powerless to rescue yourself, though, when you are powerless to effect any kind of change, your own strength, your own self-sufficiency will only get you so far. Perhaps in all of it, God has designed such a crucible of affliction simply to bring you to the point of weakness, beloved. If you're asking, where do I fall? Simply ask what you pray for. Do my prayers reflect the knowledge of who God is and what he has promised, what he desires of me? Or do they reflect something much different? That's not saying that praying for everything else is bad. It's just simply saying, what is, what's the content of the well you draw from, even in prayer? Right? Do I come before God and plead for him to rescue me, knowing that he is my only savior? Do I come before God and plead for him to fill me with joy, even in the midst of the trial, knowing that I can only take delight in him? Do I ask him to uphold justice, knowing that he is the only righteous one and the sure righteous judge of all things? Do I entrust myself to him, knowing that even as I am frail and feeble and fickle and my heart and mind will go a million miles an hour, that he is the one constant source of stability in every single thing. And more than this, he is my strong shelter. My life cannot be taken from me until the very moment he has ordained it. Beloved, my point in all this, again, is is not to, to beat anybody up, but to just simply say, where are my affections and my hope? If your heart wavers, that's okay. But if your constant hope is Christ, it's always going to go back to him no matter what. You might waver. You might be disheveled. You might feel as if some days you are the epitome of what it means to not trust in God. And yet, if you keep going back to him, you're doing okay. In all of it, what I'm looking to simply lift up before you today is, can I examine and say that God is my exceeding joy rather than everything else. This is what our psalmist does here. Right? He not only prays for vindication, he not only claims that God is his stronghold, he's going to now pray for restoration from the God who gives him light and truth, but he's ultimately going to look at God as ex- his exceeding joy no matter what. 
So look with me now to verse 3. We're going to find that, again, he asks for restoration from the God who is his light and truth. He says, Oh, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Right? In every instance, again, what is the psalmist's position? It's darkness, it's false accusation, it's imprisonment. And yet what he asks for is not merely that God would rescue him, but the very light and truth of God itself would go forth. Or as the Hebrew puts it, be set loose, to just run wild. The psalmist, he gives this almost human-like description of, of God's light and truth here. He says, the very light and truth of God is seen as something that really just emanates or flows from God's character and being. They are of his very nature. And so he says, at your beck and call, Lord, you can let them loose and they'll go forth. He knows that this is precisely what he needs in the midst of this time where these guys are just literally railing against him with untruth and falsehood. And yet the light of God and his truth of, or the truth of his word, essentially, are not only the one things that have the ability to defend him before his accusers. I'm sorry, my words are escaping my mouth. Let me try that one more time. The light and truth of God not only have the ability to defend him, they have the ability to bring him back into the very presence of his God. That's what he means here by asking that God's light and truth would ultimately go forth, that they would bring him back to the Lord's holy hill and his dwelling places. Remember, as I talked about this before in the last sermon, that God specifically dwelt in the midst of Israel in spirit in the tabernacle. That's what he's asking, is that he's going to be restored back to his position that he embraced before. He's saying not only should the the light and truth have the ability to set the captive free, but they should have the ability to go and bring one before God himself. In other words, rescue me from the affliction of my persecutors so that I might come before you and praise you yet again. His primary concern is not ultimately that the trial is over. I really want you to understand that. His primary concern is not that the trial is over, but that he is restored to God himself. That's his delight. That's what he wants more than anything else is to be in the presence of his God. He wants to worship and be back in the presence of his God. But all throughout the testimony of scripture, we see these same terms of light and truth continually come up and they are just given as descriptions, not only of life and order, but as the very sure path of salvation, the only thing in which the people actually put their hope in. It's used synonymously with the word of God from the very beginning. So in the creation account, you have in in the book of Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2, amidst the darkness, what do you find? But that there is God doing one thing first. What did he do? He spoke. Right? He said, let there be light. From the chaos and darkness, God brought forth order and life. By the very power of his word, he said, let there be light. And what happens? There was light, right? The light was separated from the darkness. He called it very good. And then from this point forward, we find he commands everything else in creation to come to be. And creation itself is just teeming with life. In other words, he commands his light to go forth, and then you have life. There's no such thing apart from God's life and light that actually can live. As creation then is subjected to futility through the curse of sin, again, it's the word of God that he brings forth the promise of the one to come who will crush the head of the serpent. Again, God's light and truth in the midst of incredible darkness actually still comes to bear. 
All throughout the Old Testament, you find the same concept where the word of God is described as a lamp unto your feet or that the light of God itself will extinguish all darkness in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial and evil days. Time and again, there's various periods of darkness, right? The prophets are coming and what do they bring? But the word of God. The word of God shines through the darkness. It reminds the people of their hope. It provides them guidance in the midst of evil days and says, turn your affections back to God. Those who feared the Lord always gave this constant refrain. Psalm 19.8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. And reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Psalm 18.28, for thou wilt light a candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, whom shall I dread? In every aspect, the word of God is seen as the means by which not only can they have life, but they will have light. It is a means by which God is preserving his people and saving his people. In times of peace, the word of God guides them in pure worship, right? But then what happens when times of peace go away? The word of God is the very same thing that guides them. It always reminds them that he is ever faithful to his promises, even when they endure affliction, even when they are cursed of God. He says, remember my promises. Without the word, ultimately, in scripture, there is nothing but darkness, And yet, with the word of God, there is light even in the most hopeless of situations. And then what do we find in the New Testament? But that this idea of light and truth comes to full prominence in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the very word of God made flesh. In him is the light of all life. John, the apostle John says, he proclaims not only is God the one who orchestrated all of creation, but he is the one who sustains all things. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. So how many things? All things. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the light was the light, or the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness has not comprehended it. And yet he says of Christ, again, he's not only the one who created all and sustains all, but that he is the one who saves. Same descriptions given of Christ here. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Without Christ, you certainly do not get guidance in the way. You certainly do not have the truth, and you most certainly do not have life. In every aspect, we see the word of God is just continually given these descriptors, right? Right? This is also why at the new heavens and the new earth, when everything is made new, God himself is our life and light for all eternity. Everything goes away. You, know, you need no more sun, no more moon. You have Christ himself, and you will bask in the radiance of his glory for all time. It shall illumine every nook and cranny of all of space and time, and you will simply bask in the presence of your creator. The light and truth of God, in other words, shall reign supreme for all time, all time, Again, do you live with an awareness of this reality? 
Do you constantly remind yourself of what the word of God is, what the light and the life of God is, and what it means for you if you are in Christ? Do you constantly bring yourself back to that hope, beloved? Do you draw from a deep well, in other words? Do you know that God's word will sustain you in times of peace and hardship, that no matter what, you will have life in him if you are in Christ? I sincerely am asking you that question. In the life of the Christian, the only thing that gives you grounds in the midst of much hopelessness is God himself. The light and truth of God is that objective reality, that objective hope you have in the midst of a broken and sinful world because it is unfailing, unflinching truth that he has given us from his very spirit. If you do not draw from God's word, what will you draw from? Beloved, it is the very life and light of mankind, not only in the inscripturated word, but in the incarnate word. So I ask you, what is the well you draw from? It must constantly be this well of word and scripture. Nothing else will give you comfort. Nothing else will sustain you in the midst of affliction, but nothing else will really bring you exceeding ultimate joy besides God himself. And the only way you can know God is through his word. We, we fancy we can find all sorts of different ways in order to know him, or we ha- perhaps live by, quote-unquote, our truth. The reality is there's no such thing as your truth. There's ultimately only one truth, and that is God's truth. And you will either submit to that reality, or you will continually spin your wheels and reject it. But that doesn't change any of that. The Bible doesn't care, ultimately, if you and I will lift it up and say that this is the very word of God. And I don't mean that in the sense that we reject it. What I mean by that is that if you reject it, the truth is not going to change its substance of what it is. It's always going to be true. It will always bring you to Christ. Whether or not you accept that reality makes no difference on what it is actually doing all the time. And when the day of judgment finally comes, all that it's going to do is lift that before your face and say, all your life you have been given this gift and you have squandered it. All of your life you have been shown what the life and light of all mankind is. For those of you who have been raised in the church and yet you do not profess Christ, you must think on this. You must, beloved, What is your joy? What is it that brings you hope? Is it this world? uh, Look at this world. It has nothing. Let's get back to our psalm. Again, notice uh, what he says about God himself. He's going to ground himself continually in God and his word. He's drawing from this deep well. He's going to say that God himself is my exceeding joy. This is now the third prayer he gives in this section here. But he no- notice he says that his joy is not going to be merely attached to freedom from the hardship in this section. What does he say? He says, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Now this verse requires very little explanation. <clears throat> All he's saying in a nutshell is that if God sends forth his truth, If God sends forth his light, if God guides him by these things back to the temple, this is going to happen. He's going to go and praise him. He's going to lift up uh, and bring song once more before the people. He's going to actually go back to the sanctuary in the presence of his God, and he's promising, I'm just going to do just that. So he's not going to go home and do anything else first. His first 
actual desire is to just go before his God once more. But pay close attention to the fact that his joy is not dependent on being delivered from this affliction. He, of course, desires that. I mean, what man wouldn't desire that, right? You have people that are mockers and liars and they want your harm. So you'd have to be a sadist if you didn't want to be free from that. But notice he uses the present tense here to describe what God is to him in the midst of this. Notice he says of the, you know, the praise that this is a, a future. I will do this if this happens, if you guide me. But when he speaks of God, he proclaims that God is his current joy. God is currently his God. Right? He, he knows that if he's delivered, it will rebound all the more in praise to God. But regardless of that, even if that fails to happen, these wicked men cannot rob him of what is his exceeding joy. They cannot rob him of who God is and what he is to him. They might cut short his praise. They might kill him. They might rob him of that fleeting feeling of happiness, but they cannot steal his delight in God. They cannot steal God from him. Right? The, the concept of this, though, is that it's much the same of what I talked about in the beginning about piety. It's not tied to this life. It's not tied to all the different things we might be able to put our hope in or our, our love in. It's ultimately tied to God himself. And so no matter what life has to throw at you, it's always going to go back to God. God himself is always going to be your ultimate joy and delight. Though you might have a banquet table that is offered to you in, the, in this life, it's filled with the choicest food and drink, you will know that God is your only portion and cup in the midst of everything. Right? You will always go back to that. You, you who fear the Lord, you know that nothing in life can actually sustain you or give you hope. Nothing can satisfy you. Apart from him, you have no good thing. Not just a little good thing, but no good thing. And yet more than this, again, the idea is that God himself is your inheritance. When everything else basically hits the fan, so to speak, God is your one hope. God is your one sustaining joy, and it's not a truth you begrudgingly accept. It's a truth that your whole heart, mind, and strength is poured out into, and you love. When everything else is stripped away, it is a condition of the heart that says, God will remain, for he is always here. He has never forsaken me. He is here now in the midst of the crucible of affliction. He has been with me in times of peace. He is my God, my exceeding joy. You either believe that or you don't. You either believe that or you don't. This is the reason I ask, what is the well you draw from? This is why I ask, and constantly why we ask, what is it that you love? It's not because we're looking at all of you as if you don't love these things. We're reminding you of what your true hope and comfort is to be, always. Is it God, or is it God plus something else? Is it God in wealth? Is it God in health? Is it God in family? Is it God in marriage? Is it God in freedom? Fill in the blank, whatever it is. Is it God plus something, or is it God? Again, ask yourself, if you woke up tomorrow and you had nothing, and I do mean nothing, would God still be your joy? Would he be your exceeding joy? Not just a little bit of delight to take away the pain, but your exceeding joy. 
If you want to know if this is true, all you have to do is ask, what is it that takes priority now? I, I mean that. We, we always think of what we will do when the time comes for something, but the reality is what we pour our time and heart and affections into today will be what's dragged up from our well. Do you pursue God? Do you pursue him with everything you have? Do you spend your time contemplating the richness of who he is, what he has promised to do, and that he has forgiven you, beloved? He has forgiven you. The slate is wiped utterly clean. It's not that the checkbook has been balanced back to zero and you get to fill it up again today. It's that your debt is fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. You have nothing in and of yourself to bring him. I'm going I'm to keep beating this drum. And the reason is we're masters at self-deception. We're masters at, at just carving out little places where we can put up the, the altars in our hearts and give our affections to something else. We have our reserve spot for God, and yet we have our reserve spot for those pet sins, those things we love, those things we will freely give God as so long as he doesn't touch this. We will give him everything else, but not that. We have all of our altars to the various gods we have bowed down to in our hearts that we've placed at least a modicum of trust in that we know cannot save us. And yet we have a never-ending source of living waters to draw from all the days of our lives. When the trials come, beloved, and believe me, they will come. They, they will come. It's promised. What is the well you will draw from? What is the well? What is it that you have made your portion and your cup today? That will be your portion and your cup tomorrow. It will be the thing that disappears like wisps of smoke in the air as you scramble to hold on to what it brought you, which is that fleeting feeling of happiness. Joy cannot be robbed of you because joy ultimately stems from God himself. If joy is what you hold on to, you will never end up worrying in the midst of affliction. You might go back and forth all the time. That's just a simple reality of it. But the one who has genuine joy can find that in the midst of affliction, that even though it's somehow not, or it's not somehow, it's just not pleasant at all. It's not that things are somehow better than they are, but that God himself will continually be this wellspring of joy, right? It's never going to be that these things are somehow magically better. It's always that God is your joy. So whatever may be happening, whatever you might be going through, whatever anxieties you might be facing today, I must ask you, is God your exceeding joy in the midst of it? Look at the life of our psalmist again, right? He had nothing that could be going good for him. In the ultimate sense, the way we would look at it, we would say he's cursed by God. And yet he has an exceeding delight in God himself through the midst of it. Every resource he draws from it is God. His exceeding joy is God. His exceeding hope is God. His strength and refuge is God. His hope is God. His cry for justice is born out of his knowledge that God is a just God. God is a God of life and truth and God is savior. And so he clings to this reality. But he has actually every confidence that God has heard him that's the mind-blowing thing here is even though this guy is all over the map emotionally, he actually still knows that God has heard him. He delights in this. 
But he knows all he must do is actually just wait. Notice what he says again in verse 5. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? He rebukes himself again. Why are you in despair? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. Why? For I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Beloved, there's a reason why three times he reminds himself of this, or three times he repeats himself, rather, that he rebukes himself and that he places his hope once more in God. Between Psalms 42 and 43, three times he does this. He's at a place of incredible weakness. He's at a place of helplessness. He is even in despair, but rather than wallow in despair, what does he do but bring himself continually back to God? He draws from what he knows to be true. He draws from a well he knows, in other words, will never run dry. His circumstances are utterly disappointing, to say it in a very kind way. He could place his hope in joining any number of things. He could place it in the freedom he had. He could place it in whatever amount of gold and silver he had, the house he had. But ultimately, he doesn't do that. He goes back to God. He asks that God would deliver him, and then he believes that at the end, no matter what, God will deliver him. He's a man of incredible trust and confidence, in other words. Though he wavers, though he despairs, though he doubts, he goes back to the one place he knows is safe. And so the question again is, do you? Do you continually go back to the God who has made covenant with you? the God who is your salvation. Again, I want to ask you one final time, what is the well you draw from? In the midst of everything, what is it that brings you hope and joy in this life? The ground of your joy and hope can only be Christ, beloved. It cannot be the material blessings that God has given you. It cannot be your own strength. It cannot be your loved ones or anything else in this life. It could only be God. It cannot even be the intensity of your faith. That's what our psalmist shows us, right? The ground of your joy and hope is not on the intensity of your faith or everything else. It's on the object of your faith, which is Jesus Christ. If you wish to know what well you draw from, look no further than what occupies your hearts and your minds right now. And I don't mean just at this exact moment, but as you conduct your life, what is it that fills your heart and mind? Is it God? Is it his word? Is it the church? Is it all the things that God has given you? Is it the very many promises and blessings that he has poured out upon you in Christ? Are these things enough for you? Are they enough? I I mean that. I, I desperately mean that. Is it enough? Everything makes a poor God. Everything makes a poor hope aside from God himself. When you come to church each Sunday, why, why do you come? Again, there's no rebuke in me asking that, but what is the purpose behind it? Is it because of obligation? Is it because of loneliness? Or is it because you know that God speaks through his word, that his word is precious to your soul, that you know his word is the only thing that will nourish you by eternal truths that 
as you gather with God's people on that great and final day when he brings you hope, you will sing for all eternity of his praises, of his eternal truth. Our constant goal as elders, if you didn't know this, by the way, our constant goal is to lift up your king before you and say, he is worthy of everything you have. He is worthy. But you must count the cost. You must count it. Cultural Christianity, cultural American Christianity has passed. It is long past. It will cost you to follow Christ. It will cost you to be faithful. It will cost you to stand for the truth. When the toll must be paid and the debt collectors come in, what will you stand on? I asked this just a few short weeks ago. Will you stand on the word? What is the one sure foundation of your hope, beloved? When trials come, what will be the well you draw from? It's another way of asking that same question. I can tell you, it is the well you draw from now. Let your exceeding joy be Christ. Let it be Christ, for he is worthy. If Christ is your joy, when trials come, you may cry, you may doubt, you may do any number of things. But the one thing you will not do is lose your joy and hope. It's simply an impossibility. You will stand tall in the midst of affliction in in God's presence and say, in your hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is the fullness of joy. This world may take my all. It may take my body. It may take my possessions. It may take every single thing that I have, but they cannot rob me of God himself, for he is my exceeding delight and my joy. He is my stronghold. He is my hope and my delight. He is my portion and cup and his light and his truth shall guide me to my dying day. I will praise him without the stain of sin. I will praise him without the affliction of my enemies. I will praise him for he shall make all things new. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you are an incredibly gracious and kind God to us, that you have not only given us your son, that he died on our behalf and gave us freedom and forgiveness, but that you transform us by your spirit into his likeness, that we might be a righteous people, And I pray, Father, that we would take seriously the commands that your word has given us, but that we would ultimately find our true delight in you and you alone, that we would be a pious people, a people whose sole duty and delight is God, that we would have our ultimate joy set in Christ, knowing that all things, though they may be pleasant or unpleasant, come from your hand, that you have seen fit to give them to us, that we may be refined that you may have your perfect work through us to bring us to the point of weakness. But you are God who does not simply leave us in weakness and adversity. You are our stronghold. You are our shelter. You protect us. You love us. Pray now for your people as they go home, that you would guide and protect them this week. Bring them back here safely that we might once again join in song to you, for you are worthy. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.